Well, good morning, church family. Great to see you. If you are a guest, uh, welcome to you. We're glad that you're here worshiping Christ with us today. We start this new series, Living Hope. And so you're going to need a Bible. Go ahead and make your way to 1 Peter. And if you didn't get one on the way in, uh, make sure you get one on the way out. Or if we need to actually get some more next week, we'll have them here. But we have these journals that are supposed to help you through our our series on 1 Peter. We're going to take actually several months to walk through this series. So that journal that you got today will help you take notes uh, each Sunday morning. But really invite you not just on Sunday mornings to use that, but utilize it throughout the week as you read through 1 Peter and allow it just to kind of change and shape your heart and your mind uh, for the Lord. And so I hope you got one of those journals on the way in. Like I said, if not, grab it on the way out. Uh, but as we transition from the series we ended last week, Praying the Bible, and we look at this new series, Living Hope, through First Peter, I want to just remind us that to continue to pray. Our goal in 2023 is that we be a church that is a prayerful church, church founded on Christ and fueled by our prayers. And so we want to continue to equip you to pray, even though we transition to a new series on, in First Peter. And so as you leave today... Uh, we've got a, a book, 30 Days of Prayer, that's going to lead up to our Missions Focus Week. And if you are a guest here, every year we take one week, two Sundays, and we focus on the heartbeat for the nations and a heartbeat for the neighborhoods, because that's what God has called us to do as a church, honestly, every church, to take the gospel from neighborhoods to nations. And so we're going to use this uh, devotional, this prayer book that you'll see on the way out that'll help prepare your heart between now and our Missions Focus week just to be praying missional prayers to the Lord. And what's really cool about this one is the devotions that are attached to these 30 days of prayer, some are written by our missionaries from our church that are serving around the world, and then some historical missionaries that have been well known that God has used them to do some some neat things. So as you use this 30 days of prayer guide, I hope that it really encourages your heart to kind of hear these devotions from the Word of God to kind of shape you to pray in a missional way uh, as we move forward to our Missions Focus Week. So excited about that. But that's coming up um, starting this Friday when we'll do that. And today we're going to be 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to do the first five verses. So you follow along with me as I read out loud. It says first, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the Dispersia, in Pontus, Galatius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for the salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Let's pray this morning. Lord, I I pray for those of us today who feel hopeless, Lord, would you give us the living hope that is found in this passage and offered from you. Lord, for those of us who know you and love you, 
Lord, I ask today that you would multiply to us grace and peace to enjoy the living hope that you have given to us. And Lord, for all of us, we need your spirit to work in our hearts that we would be able to understand your word and your truth, that we would live it out and respond to it. So Lord, give us understanding today to your word. Now let me invite you to pray also, asking that God would give you understanding to his word and change your heart and your mind because of it. Would you pray and ask him to do that this morning? Would you also pray for me as we start this new series on 1 Peter, a book that's going to highlight a lot of suffering and pain, but also the hope that we can have with it. Would you just pray for me that I would be able to to honor the Lord well through this preaching and serve you well. Would you pray for me now? Father, we live in a world full of trouble and anguish. But Lord, your word is our delight And so give us understanding that we would enjoy the abundant life you promised us. It's in your name we ask. Amen. Well, here in America today, there is a a hope problem. There's a hope, or better yet, a lack thereof hope that's really permeating the American culture today. There was a survey done not too long ago by the CDC where they interviewed every one of the 50 states Um, students, those that are teenagers. And they asked them many questions, but one of the ones that they asked them was around kind of their view on hope and their their view on uh, optimism of the days ahead. And 44%, so almost half of these students responded saying that they have a persistent feeling of sadness and hopelessness. Almost 50%. Let that settle in because this is the younger, younger generation. They should be the most op- optimistic, right? They should be the ones that are most excited about what's ahead and hopeful about what could be. And yet this is the generation who's saying, we have no hope. They're just filled, we're just filled with sadness. Almost half. This is an extreme problem that we have. When this survey came out, there's many organizations that try to figure out why. Like why that is. Why is there a sense of hopelessness in this coming generation. And, and what they found was interesting. They're like, some of the things that in the past we would say has caused hopelessness are actually down. Like some of the crazy risks that teenagers would take in the past or some foolish things that they would do, they seem to be kind of lower down the scale. They're not happening as much anymore. And bullying is something that they would look at and say, that's what's kind of crushed the hope or the soul of this next generation. What they're finding statistically is that's even lower than it's been in the previous years. And so a lot of your places are kind of scratching their head like, then what's causing this? And some will say, well, it's probably social media. Social media, everybody's comparing their B-life role, right, to the, the A-role footage that everybody else is posting online. And because they look at their life and they're like, I'm a B or I'm a C person, I'm not as good as them, then they're hopeless. Maybe that's part of it. Others have said it's because of everything that's going on in news and media. Like we look at the, the world around us and we see natural disasters everywhere. And as soon as one's finished, another one starts up. 
or there's injustices that we continue to see across nations and across the world, or there's political turmoil that we continue to see all the time. And all these things are just kind of bearing down on our nation and the next generation, and it's breeding in us hopelessness. It's breeding in our hearts discouragement. All the stuff that's going on out there is bringing chaos into here. And all the chaos in here is going out there. We are in clear need of hope. Now, this type of hopelessness that we find statistically in our culture today is not unique to our time and our season. It's not. You'll find this struggle to to have hope all throughout history. It's not just unique to our time. You see, Peter's writing a letter to people who are struggling to have hope. And as you read this letter, and I encourage you to maybe even sit down at one point and read it in its entirety in one sitting, what you'll find is that there's a lot of suffering and pain and hopelessness that Peter is going to write to in this letter. Now you see in verse 1, as Peter, the, the apostle, the disciple of Jesus is writing, he says there's this group of exiles, these people who are who have been forced out, they've been dispersed, and then he lists a whole bunch of cities that these people are living in. All these cities are found in Turkey, and they've been dispersed from Rome. Now, the reason why they have a feeling of hopelessness that Peter is speaking to is because what happened there in 64 AD was the Caesar that was leading was Nero. And Nero kind of looked across the city, and there were certain parts of the city that kind of weren't up to what he hoped. And so he's like, let's, let's get rid of these parts of the city. So what he did is he burnt down portions of Rome, portions of the city, so they could have just a clean footprint to build whatever he wanted to. Now, what he didn't expect, and the problem with that was, as these different places were burnt down, people lost businesses, and they lost homes, They lost places where they had made memories with others. And so there was an uproar, an upcry that happened in Rome. And so politically, they look around, and not everybody knew that it was Nero that did this. And so they're like, well, who can we blame? And so what they did is they looked at the Christians, those who were marginalized, those who were kind of overlooked or forgotten. There was a lot of confusion about them because it was such a, the early church at that point, that they're like, it was the Christians, The Christians are the ones that burnt these different places in Rome, and when they kind of put this out there publicly, it created strife with Christians and other people. It created persecution from the government as well as from from friends and family who weren't believers. And so they're exiles now. They've had to leave their homes and their businesses and some of their family, and they're living out in this weighty world that seems hopeless. You see, they know, too, what it's like to feel injustice. And then they were lied about, saying that they did something they didn't do, and they're being oppressed for that. They know what it's like to feel like there's no way that this is going to get better. We lost everything in the past, now we're living in a foreign country. They know what it's like to lose and to suffer. And so Peter writes to them to give them hope, to give them hope. Now, I know as I've thought about today and I've prayed for you guys, 
that many of you have come in today and you too have that sense of hopelessness in your soul. There's some of you that are probably tuning in online today because you just have a sense of hopelessness that you didn't even get out of bed today to get here to gather together with God's people to be encouraged. And I would just say, if you feel that way today, I hope that this word encourages you. I hope that you find the living hope that Jesus wants to offer you today. And Peter's going to write to us, not just in this passage, but even in this series, to help create in us a heart that looks to Jesus to find a living hope. And as I talk about hope, I know this is a word that's thrown around a lot, but the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, the Christian hope, is a unique hope. It is vastly different than anything you will find in the world. I promise you. I promise you. And what I want to highlight today and in the series ahead is the uniqueness of this hope. There's three things I want you to see about the Christian hope that's unique. And first is this, that we have a hope that expands beyond our sin. That we have a hope that expands beyond our sin. And let me tell you what I mean by that. Peter, who writes this letter, if you're familiar with with the Word of God, if you're familiar with the story of Peter, you'll know what I mean when I say that there's a hope that expands beyond our sin. Peter, he had faithfully followed Christ for three plus years. He had heard Jesus teach lessons. He had shared and taught some himself, I'm sure. But there comes to a point where Jesus looks at Peter and says, hey, Peter, you're going to deny me, not once, but three times. And Peter kind of laughs, and he's like, no, 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 Jesus, I would never do that. Like the other disciples, they will probably like deny you and forsake you and betray you, but not me, because I'm Peter, I'm the rock. That's what his name literally means, the rock. And Jesus had changed it from Simon to Peter. He's like, but I'm the rock, I'm not going to abandon you, I'm not going to forsake you. But Jesus is always right. Jesus always speaks truth. What you find in the life of Peter is that's exactly what happened. He denied Jesus multiple times. He sinned and abandoned his king. He did. But his story didn't end in his sin. You know why? Because Jesus offers a a hope that goes beyond our sin. And so when Jesus goes to the cross for our sin and dies there, and he goes into the grave, he raises from the grave, defeating our sin and defeating death, and then he restores Peter. He restores Peter. He forgives Peter of his sins. See, the hope that Jesus offers expanded far beyond Peter's sin. And then he looks at Peter, and if you know the story, he sits there and shares a meal with Peter, and Jesus says to him, Peter, if you truly love me, would you feed my sheep? Which is the the church, will you care well for the people of God? Would you strengthen them? Would you build them up? And I just imagine, I think, that this is probably the premise of this book being written. Peter hears about people who are hopeless and who are struggling even with their own sins and are struggling in a world of suffering. And Peter's probably thinking back to what Christ said. I'm going to strengthen the sheep. I'm going to feed them. I'm going to care for them. And so he starts to write a letter to these people who are in a seemingly hopeless situation to encourage them that all this stuff is not an accident. That there is a God who foreknew all this stuff that was going to happen. 
And there's a spirit, verse 2 tells us, that's working within us to sanctify us, to purge out all of those sins that we find desperately in our hearts and our hopelessness. And there's a wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ, who has shed his blood to cleanse us from all of these sins, verse 2. This is what it's talking about, the sprinkling of his blood. You see, salvation work is a Trinitarian work. There is one God. God, but there are three persons in that God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Every one of them are working in us. And I know some of us are thinking right now, well, there is a lot of sin in my life. You're talking about like there's a hope that's going to expand beyond my sin, but you don't know how far my sin goes, Ryan. I maybe don't. But Peter got himself into a lot of sin and a lot of issues in his life, and that's why I think at the end of verse 2, he says this, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. <laughs> he knows in, in math equations, we don't need an addition. We don't need like a little bit more. We need a multiplication of his grace and his peace in our life. Why? We need grace because we all stumble. We all sin. And, and when we sin, it breaks peace that we have with God and with others. And so we need more grace to forgive us when we stumble we need more peace to repair relationships with God and with others when we sin. And Peter's like, yeah, you do. So do I. So may this grace and may this peace be multiplied to you. And then just to highlight the importance of the depth of this grace and this peace, in verse 3, talking about the saving work of God, he says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. See, Peter knows that there's a feeling of, of hopelessness within the people, and yet it does not stop him from praising God for who he is and what he's done. And so in verse 3, he says, blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a praise. This is a worship song coming out of his mouth in their suffering and in their pain and in their exile. How can he do that? According to the great mercy. Once again, this is that multiplication language. It doesn't just say here, according to God's mercy, according to God's good mercy. No, this is his great mercy, his deep mercy, his wide mercy, his expanding far mercy to us. And this mercy brings to us salvation. Did you see that? According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. And this great mercy leads us to salvation. Now, notice the different workings of the Trinity. Because it's fascinating. A lot of times we look and we think, well, God the Father is like the mean one. And Jesus is the really kind one who steps in the way of God the Father's wrath. Because the Father's just really mean. And that's not the picture that you find here. That's not the picture. It is the Father who has started all of this. It's the Father's great mercy that sends His Son to die on the cross for us. It is the Father's great mercy to stir in us and to cause us to be born again. The Father does this. And this is the beauty of His great mercy. This great mercy gives us a hope that this grace expands far, far beyond our sins. Far beyond the sins of Peter, 
far beyond the sins of the, the people who would read this letter in the first century, far beyond your sins and my sins. It is a great, great mercy that leads us to be born again. Now, there is confusion over this born-again language because it just sounds weird. Let's just be honest for a second. Born again, like what is that about? And I've even heard people talk about it in the past like, oh, you know, there's some people, that's a born-again Christian, meaning that like they're super entrenched and they're like a strong believer, but I'm just kind of like a Christian. But he's born-again Christian. Like that's a different level. You need to understand that's not how the Bible talks about it. If you say, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer, the only way that happens is you are born again. You're born again. That's it. And that's what he's saying right here, that believers have been born again. Why? Because of the great mercy of God. And the reason why it uses this language, born again, is because we were dead in our sins. Our hearts were hard as stone. Our eyes were blind. And God in his grace, mercy comes in and he opens our eyes. He exchanges our heart of stone for a heart of flesh. He removes our sins from us and makes us born again. But sadly, what I think we do sometimes when we kind of create these two categories of like born again and I'm a Christian over here, is we start to say, well, I just need to have like a little bit of some ingredients sprinkled in my life so I can just be a little bit better person. Not realizing the depths of our sin and how it brought death to our soul. You see, Jesus is offering us, offering us a great mercy to save us. We do not need a sprinkling of morality in our lives so that we can get to heaven. No, what we need is a great mercy from our God to reach down and cause us to be born again. You see, there was this guy in the uh, book of John named Nicodemus, and he struggled with this. He's sitting down with Jesus, and he's basically asking Jesus, what are those ingredients? What is the, the, the principles I can apply to my life and the truth that sounds really good that I can just kind of sprinkle on my life, and then I'm good to go? And Jesus responds to him. He's like, Nicodemus, no, you're missing it. You've got to be born again. You need, you need a hope that's going to expand beyond your sins because it's not in a sprinkling of good works that's going to make you better. No, it isn't a great mercy that saves you. And Nicodemus responds like probably I would have and many of us would have. Jesus, what are you talking about? That's weird. Like I can't climb back into the womb of my mother. Like I'm a pretty big guy right now. That doesn't work. And Jesus is like, no, you, you misunderstand. What you need is a new heart. What you need is from, to move from the kingdom of death to the kingdom of life. And so there's, there's an offer for anyone here today to come and receive the great mercy of God and be saved and be saved. And for, for us here who have trusted in Christ, then be encouraged by this truth that there's a great mercy that expands over your sins. Never worry you're going to lose your salvation. You can't. His mercy is more. His mercy is great. It is greater than your sins. And for us to live in this kind of hope, for us to have a living hope, it is found not when we try to cover up our sins, not when we try to hide our sins, when we come before God and we confess our sin and allow his great mercy to forgive us, that's when we found a living hope. That's when we found what, we, what our hearts and our souls are longing for. 
It's found when we confess and are forgiven. See, that's unique. Grace and mercy, that's a unique way to get hope. Admitting that you have failed and you have done wrong, that, that's an interesting way to get hope. But that's how we find a living hope. Now, this living hope is not just offered to expand. It's not just unique because it expands past our sins. But second, it's unique because it endures beyond the grave. This is a hope that endures beyond the grave. It's not just a hope for the here and now. It's a hope that goes beyond grave. It leads us up to the grave itself. You see, when we talk about hope in our culture today, we we tend to talk about it like wishful thinking. Like, when we talk about hope, we might say, man, I hope when I go over to Texas Roadhouse for lunch today, I hope that I find a parking spot. Well, that's wishful thinking. A personal hope that I have right now is I hope that the Yankees don't continue to be as bad as they are right now and have the worst record that they've had since uh, 1992, okay? I got applause and a clap for that last hour, Okay. You can applaud and clap a lot of good things here, but please don't applaud and clap the failure of my Yankees, okay? Applaud and clap the goodness of God and His great mercy. Applaud and clap that. But those are the ways we talk about hope, okay? That's not how the Bible talks about hope. When it talks about hope here in verse 3, it's talking about not wishful thinking, but assured confidence. Assured confidence. This kind of hope that the Bible talks about is not a optimistic confidence that, man, everything's going to get better one day. So tomorrow's going to be better than today. That's not what it's talking about. It's a living hope that endures in the midst of suffering and pain and hopelessness. When you read 1 Peter, Peter's going to say, hey, you've got this living hope, but guess what? There's fiery trials that are going to happen. There's pain and there's suffering in your life. There is sorrow that's going to happen. Peter doesn't start this letter and say, hey, I'm going to offer you living hope. And then I'm just going to tell you nothing but rainbows and butterflies and, and unicorns. This is all going to happen in your life. No, he says there's going to be hardship. There's going to be suffering and pain. And there is no way that we get through this life unless we know how to go through suffering. And there's no way that we go through suffering well unless we have a living hope. This is unique. You see... What he's saying Christians have in Christ is not a fake hope that will one day outgrow. It's not a pretend hope that we'll never see the fulfillment of. It's not a dead hope of past years, memories, and wishes. No, it is a living hope. Living hope. It is responsive and active. And so, yes, it walks with us through those hard and difficult times. Yes, it helps us when our Hearts are heavy and the skies are dark. It is a living hope. And the way that we know that this is a living hope and an active hope is because of where that hope comes from. Look back at verse 3. Where does this hope rest? Where does this hope rely? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Do you know how we know that this is a living hope and not a dead, dying, fake hope? Because the one who gives it is alive today. The one who gives it has 
gone into the grave and defeated death and now reigns on high, so our hope rests in Him and what He has done. We have hope, a living hope, because Jesus Christ is alive. And praise God that He is, because the Scriptures tell us that if He didn't raise from the dead, if we don't trust and believe in that, then we are still stuck in our sin. We have no hope that expands beyond our sin if Christ hasn't risen from the grave. We have no hope as we go to the grave unless he has defeated the grave. We have no hope in that. But because he has, we have a living hope. And this is vastly different than anything the world has to offer. You look at any philosophy out there, you look at any other religion out there, and you do not find a living hope. I remember years ago I was studying different religions across the world. And I remember reading these things and studying them and being like, man, all these are hopeless. Like, I don't know about you, but nothing sounds encouraging to me about reincarnation. I mean, I'm almost 40 now, and this, this life has been hard enough. I don't want to relive it and relive it and relive it and relive it and just enjoy the suffering again and then pain and suffering again. Like, no. Until one day where you just hopefully cease to exist. That, that's not hope. It's not hope. You have other religions that maybe God cares for you, maybe he doesn't. See, Christian hope is a living hope. It is one that comes through the love of Jesus Christ, that he would die for our sins, but not in there, would, would rise from the grave in order to offer us this kind of hope. This is a living hope. See, other philosophies out there, if you study them, what you'll find is every one of those is hopeless as well. There's a scholar, Karen Jobes, in uh, her First Peter commentary, she actually writes on this. And one of the things she says, speaking about the philosophies out there, is fascinating. Speaking of the, the philosophy at the time when Peter wrote this, he said the, she said in the Greek thought during this time, there was only despair of life followed by the undimming night of death. The existential despair left a bleak view, not just in life now, but in what would be to come. It killed any hope the people had in the world today. She said, it's no wonder why that both versions of the ancient uh, Pandora's box story has hope as the one thing that didn't leave the box and enter into the world. Because in the ancient mind, as they wrote this, the final estimate was that hope was dead. That's why I didn't get up and come into the world in that story. Because it's dead. But we have a living hope because the one who was dead got up from the grave and came into the living world to give us hope. And so as we sit here and we're living in a land of death, and we're full of, of people who are tired of fake, dead, dying hopes, we rejoice in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, knowing that through it, we have a hope that goes beyond our suffering and goes beyond the grave. This allows us to live in a way that is totally different than anybody in the world. Anybody. There's another, a third way that our hope is unique as believers, and it's this. We have a hope that extends beyond time. We have a hope that extends beyond time. If you look in verse 4, there's a, 
a word that I, I, I just couldn't get past this week. There are several words, but this one just resting on. In verse 4, you see an inheritance. An inheritance. I mean, it makes a lot of sense when you read the first parts and you're like, I need grace. I need peace. I need great mercy in my life for my sin. Like, I get that. Yes, I have hope through the resurrection of Christ. And like, that's probably more than enough. That's certainly more than I deserve. But now in verse 4, you're talking to me about an inheritance that I have? Man, I, I I don't deserve that. I don't deserve an inheritance. But it's because of the great grace and the great peace and the great mercy of Jesus that he extends to us this inheritance. And this should startle you as you read it. If you know the depths of your sin, this should startle you that God would give you an inheritance. And the reason why is because inheritance, you don't earn an inheritance. When you get an inheritance because somebody else worked, somebody else did these things, saved up this money, saved up this treasure, whatever it is, and then they give it to you. You don't earn it. It's given to you. And what we find here is that we did not earn an inheritance, but through the goodness of Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection, now we have an inheritance given to us, extended to us. That's amazing. Jesus didn't just want to save us. Do you see that? He didn't just want to save us, but he wanted us to to enjoy the reward of his victory over life and death and sin forever. That's the inheritance that we have. And look at how this inheritance is described. Three different words in verse 4. It is imperishable. It is undefiled. It is unfading. This is the type of inheritance that Jesus is extending and offering to us today through hope in him. You see, it's imperishable. And what that means is it's never going to die. It's never going to die. This living hope that we have has not got an expiration date. It is eternal. It is an inheritance that we will enjoy forever. And it leads us to that salvation that we have. It is undefiled, which means it's never going to spoil. It's never going to go bad. It is undefiled. It is unfading. It's never going to lose its sheen nor its shine. It will always be beautiful. This is the inheritance that Peter's trying to encourage the people at this time with and us with. Oh, that we would have a glimmer, a glimpse of this hope. And some of us feel like we're losing it. Some of us feel like we're, we're slowly sifting out of our hands and falling down. And that's why you should be encouraged that you cannot lose this living hope. You can't. Look at the end of verse 4. It is kept in heaven for you. It's kept. You cannot lose it. You can't lose it. It is kept. How, how is it kept? By God's power, verse 5 tells us. Who, by God's power, is being guarded. That word guarded is talking about, got a great phone, phone call coming in. It's not me. Don't worry. It's being guarded. This word guarded right here talks about somebody who, who stands outside and guards and keeps a garrison. So it's, it's literally like safe and secure. 
So nobody's getting in, nobody's getting out, because it's guarded by the power of God. By the power of God. That's a, that's a big power to be guarding, right? Which should encourage all of us, which means you can't lose it. You cannot lose it. It is guarded by God, this living hope. Though you feel it might be sifting through your hands right now, you cannot lose it. It is guarded for you, this inheritance for all of eternity that expands time. You cannot lose it. It's guarded by the power of God. By the power of God. Well, this is beautiful. This is where our trust and our rest lies. And then look at the very end of verse 5. As he's talking about this salvation, this inheritance, this hope that we have, it says, for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. For some of us, we think that the salvation that we understand and experience right now is all there is. Now let me just tell you, if that's it, if that's what you think, then you're wrong. There is so much to be enjoyed in the inheritance of the salvation and this hope that we have. So much more to be enjoyed. And yet, so many of us stop short and say, I'll just take a small little piece of hope instead of grasping this living hope. And Peter's like, no, 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 keep going. Keep going. It's held for the day ahead. When Christ comes back again, it will be revealed, and you'll have a clearer picture of this beautiful inheritance, this beautiful living hope that you don't even understand in its fullness right now. He's telling us to keep going, to keep looking forward, to keep seeing. It would sort of be like a man who's absolutely in love with a woman, who's absolutely in love with him. And so what he does is he prepares to propose to her, and he lays rose petals down on the ground to build a trail that she can follow, and those rose petals turn into roses that are laid on the ground, and several roses are laid on the ground, and then it moves to where the man is there waiting to propose and say, will you marry me? And yet, could you imagine if you were standing there watching this, and the woman is walking forward, and she picks up a couple of the rose petals, and she's like, man, this is, this is awesome. This is all I need. And she turns around and walks away. We'd be like, no, keep going, keep going. And maybe she walks a little bit further, and she picks up a rose, and she's like, oh, look at, look at this. Ro- I've, got, I've, got, I've got 12 roses right here. This is all I need. I'm good. And we, and we pull back. But like, no, the greater love is ahead. The, the greatest act is ahead. Keep going. And so you keep following until you reach your true love. You see, too often we stop short of enjoying and understanding this living hope that God offers us. And Peter is pushing us to examine it deeper. No, look, 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 it's imperishable. Look, look, this, this living hope, it's, it's undefiled. Look, it's, it's unfading. The salvation that, that God is giving you through his great mercy, it is guarded in heaven. Until one day you'll get there and you'll look and you'll be like, man, I never realized the depth or the breadth or the beauty of God's love for me and the salvation that he extended to me. Oh, church, this is the kind of hope that helps us endure well. Not just through our sin and not just up to the grave, but it extends for all of eternity that we will enjoy this kind of salvation, this kind of living hope. And so as we close today, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. And this is to remind us of how we get this living hope. You see, we can't get this living hope, like I said, by sprinkling some morality in our life. Like, no, we have to come to Jesus, the one who lived and died 
and then defeated death, rose from the grave. And so what we do is we take this, we remember what it cost God to give us this living hope. It cost Jesus his life, that he would go to the cross and die for our sins. And so that's what we're remembering now. We're thinking back. But at the same time as we take this, we look forward to the day ahead. God's Word tells us to continue to take the Lord's Supper until Christ returns again. And then there'll be this massive feast that he has with us for all who have believed and have been born again. And so this is for believers. When you take this, you're proclaiming, you're proclaiming that I believe that Christ died for my sins. That his blood was shed for my sins. And so two ways to respond to this. If you are not a believer, then put this down and use this moment of silence to pray and ask for God to forgive you of your sins. And remember that truth, that his, his love is going to give you a hope that expands beyond your sin. Grace and peace will be multiplied to you, and Christ will, will birth you again, give you a new heart and a new mind. And for those of us who have trusted in Jesus Christ, then we get to take this with great joy, remembering what this salvation cost him. It cost him his life. And God's word encourages us as believers as we take this to confess our sins to him beforehand so that we can be reminded of our assurance of pardon. That as we take this afterwards, that we remember his blood and his body was more than enough to expand over all of our sin. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to start us and I'll give you just a few moments to pray and ask forgiveness of your sins or to be saved for the very first time. And then I'll lead us to take the Lord's Supper in remembrance of him. Let's pray.